Welcome to the Commander-in-Chief Podcast. I'm Yuri Kruman, founder and CEO of Commander-in-Chief Media Group, award-winning chief people officer and keynote speaker, author of five books, Fortune 500 consultant and corporate trainer, and contributor to Fast Company, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Newsweek. Our mission at Commander-in-Chief Media is to help 100 million people around the world in the next 10 years to do their life's best work in the here and now through storytelling, educational media, thought leadership, HR consulting, corporate training, coaching, speaking, and authentic high-quality writing, helping people become their own Commanders-in-Chief. Now, if you're interested in being a guest on the Commander-in-Chief podcast, Stick around until the end of the show. We will share with you what we're looking for and how to apply. Hey guys, my name is Yuri Kruman and I'm the host of the Commander-in-Chief podcast. I'm very excited today to speak with Rob Krichak, who's the Chief Connection Officer at Humans First. Rob, welcome to the show. I'm excited to speak with you, not least because uh, something human in the title of your company, you're dealing with subjects that are very close to my heart. But uh, please tell us about your business, your story. We'd love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really grateful for the opportunity and appreciate you having me here. So I grew up in Wisconsin in a small town of 2,500 people. It's in the Midwest, just 90 miles north of Chicago, if you have some international listeners. And my parents were super supportive, and I have a sister as well. And you know, I ended up going to college and getting three different degrees. I got a finance degree, Spanish and management. And I knew that I always loved numbers. So out of college, I ended up being a sell side equity analyst. And what that means is that I would research medical device and pharmaceutical stocks. I would talk to management companies, read research reports and make financial models that analyze these companies. And then we would publish it and, and give it to clients and talk mm-hmm. to clients as well. And uh, that was a really valuable experience. I really admire the company. I really respect them a lot. I think Barrett is a great place to work. But I just felt like I wasn't helping people enough in that career. And so while I was doing this 60-hour week day job and you know attempting to take this test for a designation called CFA charter holder, which is really, really difficult, you know, they recommend oh, yeah. that you take this annual test, you, you take it only once a year and you have to study or they recommend 300 hours of study every year. So I was taking this test that requires 300 hours of study, working a 60 hour week day job, and then starting my other business, my first business on the side as best I could. Mm-hmm. And that ended up being an anytime fitness health club. The year of my life where there was some overlap between my day job and starting that business was easily the most difficult year of my life. And I wouldn't want to repeat it if I, you know, unless I really had to again, but it really taught me that I couldn't be as perfectionistic as I wanted to be just simply because Mm -hmm. time didn't allow it. It, I always say like I'm a recovering perfectionist. And that time was pretty difficult for me to adjust to not being perfectionistic. But the other thing is that, you know, it really helped me organize my time and be much better with it and really think about what's important in life and what's important for me and make sure that I could spend the time doing the things that that I needed to. So I ended up opening up that business. And as soon as it was successful, and enough for me to cover my living expenses. I traveled around the, you know, I quit my day job. I traveled around the world. I went to Central America, South America, and Europe, all with a backpack. And then about six months later, I came back and opened up two more Anytime Fitness Health Clubs. And those were ones that I had purchased that were existing, and they were all in different states. So now mm-hmm. I'm managing three different clubs across three different states and, you know, have three different payrolls, stuff like that. That was pretty challenging. And, you know, definitely learned a lot from that experience. That business model ended up being kind of past its prime at that point. And so then I ended up investing in 
four You Break, I Fix cell phone repair stores and ran all four of those in the Milwaukee area and eventually ended up selling all those businesses. And now I have my current company, which is Humans First, which is a consultancy that helps other companies transition from a five-day work week to a four-day work week with no loss in productivity or profitability and the same pay for employees. And so if you look at my career, I kind of say I always have like career ADD. I went from finance and business to health and fitness to technology. And, you know, I actually view humans first as a combination of all three of those things and how I'm helping companies. Very cool. Thank you. That's quite a story. I'm very much familiar with the the whole career uh, hopping or DHD, as you called it, which is interesting. (laughs) Six careers so far for me. Let's see. Let's see how things go from there. Wow. I have to just maybe provide uh, some background. So I went to college with a lot of people that ended up in equity research, some of the absolute most brilliant people, some of the most motivated people hardworking, crazy hours, the whole deal. And uh, for whatever reason, a lot of them actually ended up leaving and starting a business of their own. So I'm not sure if it's something around uh, figuring out the fundamentals of a company, what's really working, what's not. I have to ask you, it's not the most obvious thing to do equity research. Okay, to get a CFA, I mean, that makes perfect sense because you're bringing a lot of that to the subject matter. You've done a lot of it. But is there a particular reason why you decided to do fitness? Is that because it's uh, you know a certain kind of revenue generating business? Is that a passion of yours? Maybe both? Yeah. So I can tell you another story about that as well. So when I was hit, I didn't realize that at the time, but I was a little anxious and you know a little nervous. And that anxious and nervousness carried into high school. And again, like I wish I had been self-aware of everything that I know now back then, but of course I wasn't. But one of the things that happened was that I developed extremely bad acne. It was like really crippling. It was so bad that I had very low self-esteem and self-worth, and it was tough for me to connect with people. It wasn't easy for me to look people in the eye. And in fact, one year for my yearbook picture, I didn't even go to the picture because I didn't want people to remember my face that way. You know, that was very traumatizing for me. And again, like I didn't realize all this until several years ago, but one of the things that I did is I used both my grades in school and lifting weights as an outlet, as a coping mechanism for this acne. And so, you know, because my parents really encouraged me to be very, you know, studious and hardworking and, and you know, do a good job in school, I ended up being valedictorian in my class of 400 kids in high school. And then with my lifting, ended up setting the school record for my weight class for this weightlifting competition that all the football players do. And so to me, hmm. you know, health, lifting weights and being fit was just something that I had done since I was 14 years old. And now, you know, now I don't use it to cope with anything because it's just part of my identity. And I feel good when I do it. And now my motivation when I do health and fitness is to, you know, become the best version of myself. I believe that if I exercise for, let's just say an hour a day, even just four or five days a week, I am a better human the other 23 hours a day. I strongly believe that. And that's really what keeps me going with my fitness now. You may not have meant this that way, but holy crap, this ultimate nerd's revenge. Imagine you're lifting more than the football team does. <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. I got to give you some serious credit for that. I don't hear that every day. I just had a guest. Uh, I'm doing a double recording today. My previous guest actually had a very similar experience. He also had crazy acne and also very introverted, et cetera. So I can relate. Also crazy introvert. Yes, I had the acne issues. I was the youngest kid in the class by like a year and a half. Oh, wow. So I don't know if there's any lesson in all this, but I think either introverts win or they just focus much more on growing themselves, not their outward appearance. And somehow that often translates into, I don't know, success. <laughs> Go yep. figure. Very cool. 
Okay. So I think on your LinkedIn, it says that you've built seven businesses, if I'm not mistaken. So tell us about some of the other things that you've done kind of before Humans First. Yeah. So I actually have had nine businesses. So it was three Ah, Amazon Fitness Health Clubs, four Mm Ubreakout Fixed Stores. Then I also had a tech startup, which was a Google Chrome extension Mm -hmm. to funnel Mm -hmm. traffic away from Amazon.com and toward or to small businesses during the pandemic to help them generate sales. And then the last one is my Humans First consultancy, now helping businesses be guided to a four-day work week. We're going to definitely go deeper into Humans First, but I'm really curious. Okay, so that's an awesome goal because needless to say, I think mom and pop shops have suffered just a tad because of Amazon and Walmart. How did that go over? How was that experience? Did you face stiff resistance or? Yeah. So it was my first experience with, you know, trying to make a tech company. I mean, I learned so many things for sure. The first thing I learned is that everything and just, and I should have known this, right? Because I tell people this about my first business, Anytime Fitness, the the, the health club, but the same is Mm -hmm. true for technology firms in that everything takes twice as long and is twice as expensive as you think it's going to be. It is what it is. But, you know, I ended up getting that plugin published in the Chrome store and it was hard to get adoption for it. But to me, it was more just, you know, I like to think of my life as a series of experiments, right? Like I mm-hmm. both experiment on myself and then I, I do experiments with other things. And to me, this was kind of an experiment on, okay, I have this tech idea. I feel like it has, you know, legs and some potential. How much does it cost me and how long does it take for me to get it built? And then what is that process like? So I ended up going into this. It was like an online accelerator with a company who was a development firm from the UK. I ended up hiring them as my developer, and then they ended up building the product for me. What I thought was going to take a month ended up probably taking closer to like three months. But eventually, I did get it published in the Chrome Store, and it you know it is it is still available. Although it's not my main focus anymore. What is it called? So just so listeners know about it. Yeah, so it's called Shop Mom and Pop. Shop Mom and Pop. That's the name of the Google Chrome extension. Love it. Love it. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. That's great. I'm glad that people are not just, you know, blabbing or doing something about it because it's a, it's a huge issue. Very cool. I saw you're also part of entrepreneurs organization. That by definition means that, you know, you've accomplished a lot in the entrepreneurial arena, not just revenue, but I think it's the journey. So we were just speaking about masterminds in the previous episode. Tell us how that's helped you. I mean, yes, you've brought a lot of experience, but no one has experience in everything. How does being part of EO, I'm sure you're part of other organizations like that as well. How has that helped your journey? Yeah, that's a great question, Yuri. And I've been a part of EO for six years now. And I actually heard about it originally from Tim Ferriss in the four-hour work week, right? So mm-hmm. he mentioned it and I was like, well, if Tim Ferriss is a part of EO, you know, there must be something pretty good about it. So I looked into it and You know, I can say that for me, it has been one of the most incredible, not only support groups, but like I kind of call it a personal development group where, you know, we get together and we go through some really tough shit. You know, we the way that EO describes it is we try to share with each other the top 5% and the bottom 5% of our lives, both business and personal lives. And, you know, those are generally the things that you're probably only going to share with your spouse or maybe your best friend and not many Mm -hmm. other people. But there's such a, an amazing thing that happens when you share that kind of information with a group of people and you know that they're truly there to simply listen and support you and see how they can help. And I've made some incredibly good friendships through EO. I have also made some great business connections through there. I've learned a ton about myself. I've learned a ton about other people. And I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I like to hope to think that I'm a student of the world and that 
I basically am curious to know something about almost anything that I don't know something about, which is basically uh-huh. everything. And so being an EO and connecting with other entrepreneurs allows me to understand their industries, their business models, their challenges to a different degree than I would be able to without that peer group. And that's been super valuable for me so that I can take that information and transfer it to my current business or other businesses and you know use it to make my business better. Fantastic. Yeah, can't stress enough just how good some of these masterminds can be, right? It's it's essentially, it's like you have a brain trust, people that are some of the best in the world at what they do, and they're complementary to, let's say, your skill set. If it's a good mastermind, if it's run well, if it's curated well, not all of them are, by the way. It's not just like throw some people in a room and hope for the best. It's not quite like that. Right. Organizations like uh, EO and, and Founders Institute, a whole bunch of others really do this well, some don't. So that's fantastic. So we're coming upon this humans first. So you've told us a bit about what it is and that it's combining a few themes from your life so far. But tell us about the impetus. How did you come upon, okay, I have to do this. Why this? Why at the point where you started it? Yeah, absolutely. I can share another story with you. So I was at one of my You Break, I Fix cell phone repair stores and I was checking guests in the store like I usually do, you know, I did that thousands of times. And this middle-aged woman came into the store with her son and I would guess that her son was maybe 15 years old. So she shuffles into the store and she's literally pushing, physically pushing her son up to the front counter. And she said to him, hey, Tyler, you need to tell this man what you did to your phone because the kid had broken his phone. And so the kid was started talking to me and I felt terrible for him because he could barely stammer out a sentence. He couldn't look me in the eye. He had really poor body posture. And, you know, my heart went out to him because he reminded me of me when I was in high school with a bad acting. You know, and so I could totally relate to how he was feeling and how he was acting. And then I also, but I also thought to myself, well, I don't know, maybe he has a developmental disability or something. I'm not quite sure, but I did my best to be really patient with him. We got him Mm -hmm. through the transaction. We fixed his phone and everything went fine. So about two weeks later, another woman came in, a different woman, and she had her daughter in the store, again, around the same age, maybe 14 to 15 years old. And basically this same thing happened where this daughter could barely communicate with me. And then I had my aha moment. I said to myself, well, these kids are coming into my store and needing to get their cell phone repaired right away, probably because they're using it a ton. So I'm guessing that these kids are using technology a lot. And Mm -hmm. maybe it's their technology use that is causing them to be this way. It's causing Mm -hmm. them to not have good social skills. And so I thought about that some more. And I was like, yeah, I think that that makes a ton of sense. And I ended up reading this book by Gene Twenge called iGen, which is basically a study of all the different generations from the 1970s through 2017 when the book was uh, published. And it shows all these different things that dramatically changed in children around 2012. Well, what happened that year? That was the first year that smartphone penetration reached 50% in the United States. And it was also the same year that Facebook bought Instagram. And that is not a coincidence. And so... Over the last four years, I've researched this area, which is what I call technology mindfulness. And I've read over 100 books and over 2,000 articles and studies in five different areas, in the areas of psychology, neurology, technology, biology, and sociology, in order to truly understand this problem at an extremely deep level so that I can really understand how to fix it for humanity. That's interesting that you mentioned Facebook and Instagram. Some might uh, say you have a more than a passing resemblance to uh, Zuck. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
But I tell my wife that the only time people say that is when my beard is really short. And so I tell her that I just trimmed it yesterday morning. And so yeah. I tell her that uh, I'm going to have to grow it extra long because I, 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 uh, I'm not a big fan of Zuck. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I get the same way, uh, but Christopher Walken. I don't know what's oh. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's great. That's funny. No, so, okay. I mean, we hit up on something really big here. We know I have three kids, you know, eight, six, and two. And I'm just seeing, you know, how each of them ha is is so quick to pick up a phone and use the camera and even, even to figure out the code somehow. And it, it just, it horrifies me. My first cell phone was like in 2003, something like that. And even then I was like, it wasn't quite Luddite. I have some, I have a friend who adopted like 2010, 2011, something crazy. I'm not a Luddite, but I see how quickly and how much kids are drawn to this stuff. And you have to hide it. You have to put it away. And then, of course, modeling the right behavior, that's the hardest part, right? Because we're, we're always on with work and whatever. I mean, all jokes aside, this is a huge problem, right? Because it affects everything from posture, socialization, psychology, development. I mean, you name it, right? It's a very scary thing. And one thing I always go back to is these uh, Waldorf schools that, um, yeah. I don't know, in uh, Silicon Valley and other places, some of the many, I would say, of the top executives from all of these you know, fan companies and other tech, they specifically put them in there. What's so special about Waldorf? Tech-free. None of this stuff. No iPads, no iPhones, none of that stuff. Makes you wonder, right? Okay, so if they understand, and you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, Nirial uh, Hooked and all that. All that jazz, right? Because he's one of the pioneers uh, first in, in trotting out this kind of paradigm for how to hook people. And then he kind of came out with the follow-up and distractible, which is try trying to kind of undo the damage, perhaps. Absolutely. Uh, and he was a great guy. I have, you know, uh, I have tremendous respect for him. But uh, it's a massive problem. And I think we're, we're maybe only scratching the surface as to all of the downstream effects of kids that have grown up in a completely digital world. Tell us a bit about some of the research that you've read and, and tell us just how horrible it is. Or maybe something is not that horrible. Maybe, there, maybe there's a silver lining. Yeah, no. Well, I, I have a story and then I can also provide some uh, statistics for you. By the way, so just because of my background as a research analyst, I love data and numbers and charts and all that stuff. So if you want a, you know, a bunch of numbers, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to throw a lot at you. Please, please do. So one of the things, though, Yuri, that is, you know, I think it's important for listeners to understand is that one of the other side effects when I had acne was that I also became addicted to video games. And this was because my parents or the, the family computer was in my bedroom. It was the only place we had to put it. And, you know, this was in the mid 90s, right before most people even had a cell phone. The Internet, you know, was still pretty new. Yeah. And so I kind of always joke that I was addicted to technology before it was cool to be addicted to technology. But the other thing is that in different parts of my life, I was also addicted to Facebook and I was also addicted to my email. And so I've been mm -hmm. addicted to, you know, three of the main technologies that people use. And I saw yep. the negative repercussions for myself. And so that's why this is a very personal, you know, crusade for me. I don't want, there's 4.2 billion people connected to the internet. I don't want those people to go through what I did because it was very painful and it was not good for my mental health and a lot of other things. So here, the statistic that really got me thinking about a lot of different stuff is this. And this is, by the way, a statistic from Nielsen, who's been measuring this for 50 years, right? So, you know, yep. it's very yep. reliable mm -hmm. in America. The average person spends 12 hours and 21 minutes a day in front of screens and media. And that is a right. statistic from before COVID. That does mm -hmm. not include COVID. You can't blame that on COVID. That's a pre-COVID yep. statistic. And so put another way, 
we are spending three quarters of every waking hour of our lives in front of screens and media. We are putting technology first, but humans aren't meant to do that. We are meant to put humans first in our world. And that is why I named yeah. my company that humans yeah. first. It's a reminder that we need to go not, not go back to, but find a better balance between technology and humanity and how we connect with other people and spend time with other people because we're not putting humans first anymore. And another thing, and probably the most, to me, concerning thing that I've learned in the last four years in researching this was the following. In 2020, the most Googled fear was a fear of other people. And I understand that it was because of COVID, but regardless mm -hmm. of the reason, we now fear the very thing that makes us most human, connecting with other people. That's crazy. And I really think that the root cause of a lot of this is how and how much we use technology. And so the mission of my company of Humans First is to educate and make humanity aware how technology is impacting mental health, relationships, and productivity at work. Very interesting. Okay. So just to, to understand what you guys do, do you provide research? Do you work with corporations? What are some of the kinds of I mean, interactions that you have with others, just, just to better understand Humans First? Yeah, totally. So we help individuals, teams, and companies have better technology mindfulness habits. And when I work with an entire company, that can ultimately result in that company officially transitioning to a four-day work week with no loss ah. of productivity or profitability. And when I say four-day yes. work week, by the way, it's four eight-hour days. It's not four 10-hour days. We're not just mm -hmm. shifting schedules around. So every right. single person in the company, including the management team, gets a full day of time back. You hit upon the... <laughs> You know that we ding 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 ding. Okay, so we've heard over the last, especially two years. Before, I think it was kind of a niche thing. It's like, well, I don't know. That's maybe for those Swedish guys, whatever. Right? It's something that's really it's having its moment. We don't know, of course, what happens when there's a recession. Nobody knows. But even just in my anecdotal kind of vision, just what I'm seeing, there's quite a few companies popping up that are either adopting this kind of schedule. They're even perpetuating it. They're baking it into their consulting work, into their technology, into their expectations. And perhaps you could tell us more on the side of the studies showing that this is, you know, is it effective, not effective? I mean, that's a great place to start. What do people know from actual experiments? I know that this has happened in larger companies, I think even Microsoft in one place. What do we know about the 4D work week? A lot of, I think, entrepreneurs, CEOs might say, oh my God, that's my Armageddon. First they went all remote. Now they want a four-day work week. What next? <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that, Yuri, because here's the way I look at the four-day work week. You know, five years ago, let's say, when you mentioned remote work, you know, there were a handful of companies doing it. I don't know what the statistic was at the time. But let's say it was, I don't know, five to ten percent of you know, companies were offering remote work. And now mm -hmm. it's basically every company because we had to with COVID, right? Like it was a necessity, yep. understandable, like it makes sense. But I kind of view the four-day work week as the same thing happening, but maybe over the next 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. So the statistic is less than 1% of U.S. companies offer this now, but I think in you know 10 to 15 years, the majority will be. So you look at this and you say, okay, well, like, what does that do for me? Like, I'm, you know, or maybe you say, I have some concerns, right? Like, how can I get everything done? And so Andrew Barnes wrote the book Four Day Week, and he was, you know, very successful CEO. He took a couple companies public in New Zealand. He also owned a 240 person uh, financial services firm. And so mm -hmm. he took his 240 person firm to a four day work week 
with basically very little game plan because it was still he did this in 2018. So it was still a relatively new concept at the time. And then he wrote a book about it. And what he found is that productivity during the four days still remained the same while still paying everyone the full amount of pay. But the interesting thing is he said that profit, profit per employee increased 14 and a half percent, you know, at the end of the experiment. And obviously he implemented it full time. And so with numbers like that, where, you know, people are getting the same pay, productivity is the same and profit per employee goes up by almost 15 percent. That's a really compelling case. But I think the Mm -hmm. biggest value proposition for a business owner is this. So in any given company, right, you have the classic 80-20 rule where 80% of the profit comes from your top 20% of the employees. Those are, we'll call those the rock star employees. Well, Mm -hmm. imagine if you have a perk so incredible that less than 1% of companies offer it like they are right now, that you can now attract basically an unlimited amount of rock stars because this perk is insane. Well, now you don't just go from 20% rock stars, maybe you're at 50, 70, 80%, right? And what does that do to the value of your company? Well, that's not a small incremental increase. That's like a two or three or five X increase in value because you have so many talented people working there. So to me, I think, you know, allowing you to recruit rockstar employees and retain them is probably the best benefit of this, in my opinion. That's interesting. So let's say we zoom out and we say, okay, that's, that's a benefit. That's something that we offer instant attraction. We know that. We know that, again, I'm, I'm kind of putting my head of HR hat on here. Yeah, yeah. So let's say, you know, if you're looking at the balance of how work looks, I mean, in, in all of its elements, we know that meetings, there are too many damn meetings, right? They're usually not run well. There's a whole bunch of fat just yeah. throughout the work day. It's too yeah. many emails. It's too, too much totally. technology for that matter, right? That's, that's, <laughs> that's the damnation of Faust here, right? So there's so much that we can safely, not just safely, but profitably cut out from the work day in terms of how it's run, how it's organized, where it's done, by whom it's done for that matter, right? So there's so many inefficiencies, so so many bullshit conventions that we know just don't work, right? So this happens to be a really, really core thing that is hiding in plain sight. But because we're stuck in this kind of industrial revolution mindset, right, that we need everyone in the office, we need everyone because we're command and control, I have to see them and such utter bullshit, right? I mean, in an ideal world. But of course, in practice, a lot of founders, CEOs, et cetera, they struggle with this because like they're looking left, they're looking right. Well, 1%, I don't know, there's a, the, those hobbits or those <laughs> those uh, liberal Swedes or whatever, right? I don't know what the hell they do there. I mean, maybe they make their Spotify more efficient. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but like, that's not for us. So how can we make the case? I mean, I'm sure you come up across this problem, right? When you look left, you look right, and you, you just, oh, I don't want to be the first. Mm-hmm. How do you make that case? How, how do you prove yeah. that to a, a tech CEO? For sure. And again, I'll throw a bunch of stats at you, right? But yeah. what I've found is there's two main concerns as a CEO with implementing something like this. And then they're very valid, right? The first one is, how can we possibly get more work done? Or the same amount of work done in four days is five, right? Mm-hmm. So I will address that in one second. And then the second concern is, well, what about client coverage? How do we make sure that our yeah. clients' needs are met when they're open five days a week and we're open four? And that one is really mm-hmm. simple. That is generally just having a like a rotating schedule where let's say if you have a department of 10 people, five people work Monday through Thursday, the other five work Tuesday through Friday. Obviously, there could be some you know unique concerns. But generally, again, Andrew Barnes had a 240-person financial services company and he made it work just fine, right? So 
if he can do that, you certainly can too, especially, you know, I was in financial services type industry. I get the client, you totally understand. But let's talk a little bit about, okay, how do you basically get one day of productivity back, right? Everyone, like, no one believes this part of it, but let me go through some numbers for you. So the average white collar worker sends and receives 126 emails per day. That doesn't even include Slack, just email. So feels like a lot more than that, but yeah, okay. It could be for sure. Maybe you do have more. Let's just take that at face value. And let's say that you have 126 emails. Well, if you're spending two minutes per email on average, which I think is very reasonable, that means that you're literally spending four hours, half of your day on email alone. Now let's layer in, let's say two hours of meetings, which again, I think some people have probably more than that. Others obviously have less, but let's just say you have two hours of meeting. Well, now your day is four hours of email, two hours of meetings. And then when are you supposed to get your job done? The answer is you're not. You basically have two hours in an eight hour day to get your all the other things done for your job, which is bananas. Like that's, that's crazy. And so the main things are reducing email and reducing meetings, right? But here's what's actually even more important than that, that we can help companies with. So when you're having an amazing day at work and you're just crushing it, like everything's going your way, you're getting a ton done, you know, that psychological state is called flow right? You're in flow. And so all this research has been done that shows that when you are in flow at work, you are up to 500% more productive than when you're not in flow. But here's the Mm -hmm. problem. No one ever gets into flow because when you're interrupted in flow, it takes you an average of 23 minutes to get back into it. Now, the Mm -hmm. average person checks their email once every six minutes, and they get a notification on their smartphone every 15 minutes. So if you're doing the math, no one is ever in flow ever at all and therefore no one is ever nearly as productive as they could be and they're not getting high quality work done or not as high quality as they could be if they were uninterrupted and didn't have any distractions. I think most of us find ourselves in this position sooner or later. We're behind and we're constantly getting further behind until we learn some kind of, it's not growth hacks, it's not magic tools. I mean, sometimes they help, but it's setting boundaries and and just cutting out bullshit meetings and centralizing communication and just making sure that there's substance and there's structure and there are takeaways, decisions are made and things move forward. I think a lot of it is just structuring things thoughtfully. But yeah, for the work week, that's maybe not another idea by now, but I think the case for it is bloody strong. Absolutely. And you know, what's interesting is I'm also working with this nonprofit called Four Day Global. Andrew Barnes, the guy who owned the financial mm-hmm. services company, started this nonprofit. And they're actually just started a trial now in the United States to run a co- bunch of companies through the four day week. Well, they also have been using or doing this initiative, the four day week abroad for some time. Andrew, I spoke to Andrew and what he told me is when they opened the trial for the four day week in the UK, in one week's time, they had 700 companies apply, 700 <laughs> in one week. And so, and I think that Europe is generally a little bit more advanced in their thinking in terms of yeah. like worker rights and other more open-minded stuff. And so mm-hmm. I think it's just a matter of time until we catch up. But if a company is open-minded, now is the time for you to have an advantage over everyone else. Because if you implement this now, you just have such a better talent pool to choose from. Yeah. So, okay, let's adjust this. Again, it's it's a brilliant idea. It makes perfect, let's say, even financial sense, never mind uh, human sense, right? Because people want to just work the four days, be just as productive, have greater, uh, let's say, profit per capita. Amazing, right? But we, let's say, have a recession. It's going to happen. I don't know if it's next week. It's going to be next month, next year. It's going to happen. Hopefully it won't be too too strong, won't be too prolonged, but it will happen. These things are inevitable. 
So what happens then, right? It's, it's the same principle with remote work. So we're just speaking with the previous guest, Daniel Blue. You know, he's in the financial services space. And in financial services, even throughout COVID, there's, there's this massive pressure back in the office, back in the office, right? The lawyers servicing the financiers back in the office, back in the office. So you have a lot of really kind of prevailing headwinds. And those prevailing headwinds, I would imagine probably would get stronger as recession comes, the power of the individual worker based on a less than hot talent market becomes weaker. So that, again, we have this more centralized kind of command and control leadership structure coming back. And then we have, let's take that stuff back. How do you think this idea becomes more adaptable in that environment, which inevitably is coming up? Yeah. So I, again, have some more data for you um, that I lo- I'd love to share. And I, I've spent an inordinate amount of time trying to really understand humanity with this company, with my research. And do I understand it as well as a PhD with a, who's a psychiatrist? No. Here's what I see happening. So if you look at a measure of uncertainty in the United States population, Basically, from about 1970 to the year 2000, uncertainty, you know, obviously it varied a little bit, but it stayed within a range, right? And then all of a sudden around the year 2000, it did a hockey stick up and the sense of uncertainty skyrocketed. And I believe Mm -hmm. that was because, you know, that's when the internet started becoming more prevalent. We we started to become more connected, both via computers and, you know, cell phones, not smartphones at the time, but still regular cell phones, right? right? And Mm so... This extreme interconnectedness is helpful in that it, you know, allows us to accomplish things and communicate and do certain things, but it also creates this low level anxiety that I don't think people understand is happening. And so I'll answer your question here in a second, but my argument would actually be that during a recession, a CEO would want to do this more than ever. And here's why. During a recession, what happens? Our sense of security and safety goes down. Because we are, the economy is uncertain. We're not sure if we're going to be able to meet our bills, right? So lower uncertainty means that we need to foster some sense of security or certainty in a different way. Well, the best way that humans do that is by nurturing their social support system or being with people that they care about. And so if you have an extra day to be with your family or have, you know, spend time in meaningful relationships that matter to you, you increase your sense of social support and that decreases the sense of anxiety and allows you to do your job better. And so it seems very counterintuitive, but I believe that during a recession, this is needed more than ever because everything else in the world is super uncertain and you'd want to have more time with friends and family who care about you. The intuitive side of me is screaming, hell yes, absolutely. Why doesn't everyone get this? Right. But of course, the transactional nature of a lot of our work and our work relationships and the nature of employment, of course, it makes it much more difficult. But I think I think the potential is, you're right, those that get it, they're going to see the value of something like this. And I, I hope and pray and whatever I can do from my side of things, um, you know, I'm all for it. I'm all for the four-day work week. I don't know about the four-hour work week. That's a whole other animal. <laughs> I don't know where the secret is for that one. I haven't discovered it yet, but... You know, four-day work week, I'm all for it. Amazing, Rob. Um, Okay, so I'd love to pivot a little bit. You've Clearly, you run a company that's called Humans First. Okay, so tell us a little bit. You've given us bits and pieces about your people management philosophy because you work with clients to develop elements of that. What does that look like in the organization itself? How do you approach, sure, I mean, helping people to get into a state of flow. I totally understand 40 work weeks so they can develop stronger 
social and, and work relationships, by the way, same idea. What are some of the other sort of pillars of your approach to managing people? Yeah, so I wish I could take credit for this saying, but I can't. I believe it's from Richard Branson. He said this, and I really love the simplicity of it, and it resonated with me very much. So he mm-hmm. said, I take my business philosophy is simple. I take care of the employees, the employees take care of the clients, and the clients take care of the business. And so it's yeah. my number one goal to help my employees be in a situation and give them the tools they need to succeed and help them be the best version of themselves, both personally and professionally. And if I can do that, then everything else will fall into place. And I feel kind of braggy when I say this, but I think a testament to that is in, in my former businesses, I was, you know, developed such good relationships with one of my former employees that him and his wife asked me to marry them. And I was an officiant in their wedding. And then with one of my members at one of my gyms, I developed such a good relationship with him that he and uh, asked me to stand up in his wedding. I just really love connecting with people and, you know, really showing them that I care. And I think if, you know, if you can do that, whether it's, you know, an employee or, you know, a client or whatever, when you show people that you really care, but you really have to mean it, you know, that I think is a very powerful thing. And I think it's becoming increasingly rare today because all of our relationships are just surface based, right? Like Mm -hmm. they're just digital. Like, oh, I'm going to, if I call my mom and tell her, I love you, mom, over the phone, that's very different. She interprets that differently. The chemicals in her brain are released differently than if I text my mom, I love you, mom. People don't realize that kind of stuff anymore. That's why I got my mom to move from Arizona to Israel. (laughs) I'm not actually joking. It's kind of true. That's great. They left home at 17 and, you know, being 39 now, it's like, all right, let's live in the same place because enough, enough of this. FaceTime is great. God bless Steve Jobs, John Ive, whatever. Yeah. You can't, you can't. You got to have the face-to-face thing, right? You got to drive to places. You got to make sure the kids and the grandma, you know, see each other. You can't replace that stuff. So I'm totally with you. That's really interesting. You presented some things that are definitely in some ways counterintuitive. Certainly the New Yorker in me or the former New Yorker in me or I don't know never gets out of you. You're always a New Yorker. It's kind of screaming like, but you know, you're Midwestern, but, but, but those hobbits, but, 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 you know, there's no, but, 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 you know, a lot of things start out as something niche. They start out as something, well, that's like those liberal Europeans. I think there's, there's something very strong here. I would love to find a way. I mean, in my HR consulting practice, same idea, right? I would almost be afraid to be laughed at by proposing something like this. But now that you've given these a different way to look at this, both just in terms of higher profitability, you know, stronger connections. Suddenly, it's not such a wild idea. So I appreciate you framing it that way. That's a very strong argument. I'm definitely going to use that myself. Towards the last part of the show, we ask every single guest essentially the same question. It's not always simple, but the guidance that our guests offer sometimes is actually quite simple and straightforward. So we're thinking about those conversations that we have in life, the four conversations that I always bring up. One is with the body. The second one is mental models and life skills. The third one is with other people. And the fourth one is with God or the universe, right? If we're thinking of this as as this hierarchy. So in your life, you're clearly someone who's incredibly well thought out. You know, you've worked in different industries. You've built multiple businesses. You've invested as well. We haven't really talked about that, but that's another maybe very holistic and, you know, kind of removed way of looking at a business and understanding its fundamentals. I guess we can connect that easily to equity research. What would you share with us around any of those four conversations that has served you as formed part of your life philosophy and, and that? you know, has brought you maybe it's clarity, meaning, impact, success, maybe all four. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I can share with you uh, that are kind of different, but related. 
So I have this document, it's called Character is Destiny. And it's basically like my personal value statement. And I, it sounds crazy, but it's a single sheet of paper, right? You know, printed like on a printer. Mm -hmm. But uh, I probably have spent over 50 hours on that sheet of paper, you know, revising it, thinking about it, under, like questioning everything. on it. And uh, I read through that every week. And I really feel like that's been a, one of the most valuable things that I've ever done. Because if you don't know what your values are, how can you make decisions, right? Like, I filter all my decisions through my values. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my life, so I have val 10 values. And I also have my life goal or my life objective. My life goal is to positively impact the lives of 1 billion people while still being a great husband, father and friend. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that humans first can do that. Because my number one value is humans first. And I know that if you know, all the people who are connected to the internet today, the 4.2 billion people knew what I knew about how technology impacts the world, the world would be a completely different place. And so that's very motivating to me. A couple other guess, sayings that I, or like things that I live by, and this is a direct quote from that, that value statement, and I didn't come up with this. It was, uh, I believe it was from James Dean, but the quote is, dream as if you'll live forever and live as if you'll die tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that really resonate with that because it, you know, really makes me want to get up every day and make sure that I love what I'm doing and that I'm making the most of each day and that I don't have any regrets when I die. But then one other thing that is a little bit more recent that I, I recently, you know, kind of internalized and, and Nikki and my wife and I actually, we said this to our guests at our wedding, the amount of love, success and happiness in this world are infinite. And so what that means is that the amount of love and success and happiness that I have doesn't take those things away from you. So let's all live a life where we have as much love, success and happiness together as possible. That to me is really, really powerful to think about. This is incredible. This is one of the most interesting conversations I've had, certainly on this podcast. You offered us uh, tremendous guidance in terms of uh, your own life philosophy. Um, certainly if you're open to sharing uh, that one page with values and goals, I think our listeners would find it tremendously useful. I'm always a fan of learning anything new that I can. You've certainly shared with us a tremendous set of not just ideas, but very concrete ways of looking at the workplace and how it's structured, how it's run. You've given us a very, very interesting journey and path and set of stories. Really appreciate it, Rob. This has been one of the best conversations I've had. Yeah, I hope we can do another, at least one, one or two installments. Yeah, well, be a tremendous I pleasure. Really, really appreciate you for saying that, Yuri. And the, the pleasure was all mine. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And, you know, I just hope that anybody listening, if, if somehow this just impacts your life positively in a very small way, like that to me is a huge win. And I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to, to chat with you and, and to hopefully have the listeners um, find some value in this. I'm confident we'll, uh, we'll feed you a few of those uh, people into the 1 billion, God willing. So thank you again. And certainly would love to continue the conversation. This has been great, Rob. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you, Yuri. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to Commander-in-Chief Podcast. To apply to be a guest on the show, head on over to CICmediagroup.com backslash guest. CIC is in Commander-in-Chief. So that's CICmediagroup.com backslash guest. These guys, help us spread the word about the podcast and our mission on social media. We're cooking up something truly special over here. And we really need your help to spread the message. The reviews, especially, are huge for helping us grow and get the golden nuggets of wisdom from our world-class guests out into the world. Go on ahead, give us a review or rating on whichever platform you use to listen. 
Our mission at Commander in Chief Media is to help 100 million people around the world in the next 10 years to do their life's best work in the here and now through storytelling, educational media, thought leadership, consulting, corporate training, coaching, speaking, and authentic high-quality writing, helping people to become their own Commanders in Chief. And before you go, please make sure to hit that subscribe button for us here at the Commander-in-Chief Podcast so that you can be the first to know when new episodes drop. Let's not be strangers, friend. Okay? Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you hang out. And, of course, if you want to learn more about our work and impact or just access some great content, plenty of that, head on over to CICmediagroup.com. That's uh, CIC as in Commander-in-Chief, mediagroup.com. Once more, this is Yuri Kruman, and thanks for listening.